Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay for this Easter Sunday, 2007, is called Believing the Believers, Public Evidence for a Mystery, and is based upon the lectionary texts for Sunday, April 8, 2007. Upon his death in 1998, my dad donated his body to the University of Arizona for medical research. I loved his final, selfless, and entirely rational decision to benefit science. But I've seen cadavers, and it felt ghoulish to picture a young medical student dissecting his corpse. About 18 months later, Federal Express delivered dad's cremains to our house. And I remember thinking that there had to be a better way than FedEx to return such a, such a sacred gift. I opened the box, untied the twisty that secured the plastic liner, and verified without what others had told me. These were not nice fluffy ashes, but gritty shards of bone. I took a pinch of the coarse remnants of my father and rubbed them back and forth between my thumb and fingers. This year, Easter Sunday falls on my dad's birthday, and I found myself resonating with Nora Gallagher's friend named Harriet. In her book, Practicing Resurrection, Gallagher recalls a conversation with Harriet, who told her about sitting in church at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. During the course of a boring sermon, the priest asked the congregation in unctuous tones, Now what do you really want for Christmas this year? I nearly rose from my pew, said Harriet. I was gathering myself up until I looked over at my sister who was giving me that look, and I sat back down. But what I wanted to do was to stand up and call out, I would really like to believe in the resurrection. Doubts about the resurrection didn't begin with the 18th century Enlightenment, with 19th century Darwinists, or with 20th century postmodernists. Only our modern hubris, what the British historian E.P. Thompson called, quote, the enormous condescension of posterity could believe that we today have advanced beyond the crude superstitions of illiterate peasants who in 33 AD were so gullible that they didn't know that corpses don't rise from the dead. No, the readings this week show that lots of people doubted the resurrection, and not only derisive unbelievers, but even Jesus' closest followers. Women took spices and perfumes to the tomb after the crucifixion to anoint a corpse, not to witness a resurrection. When Mary Magdala saw the empty tomb, she thought that someone had stolen the body. We read in John 20, verse 2, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. She wept and she cried, They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. If you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. 
John 20, verses 13 and 15. Matthew says that this stolen body, body scenario was, quote-unquote, widely circulated in his day. Matthew 28, 15. When Mary Magdalene and several other women subsequently told the eleven disciples that they had seen the risen Lord, they didn't believe it. Luke is even more blunt. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Luke 24:11. That first Sunday night, the eleven disciples cowered behind locked doors. And why not? It was not unreasonable for them to fear for their own lives. Later, two witnesses reported their encounter with Jesus to the eleven, but they did not believe them either. And even Jesus himself rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. Thomas eventually became the most famous doubter of all, of course, and in what might have been his last resurrection appearance, there were still, quote, some who doubted, end quote. Matthew twenty-eight seventeen. At some point, though, this widespread doubt and confusion gave way to deep-seated conviction, and history has never been the same. Luke says that after Jesus suffered, he showed himself to men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, Acts 1.3. The panic of these unschooled and ordinary men gave way to their bold proclamation that we read in Acts 2.32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. When commanded by the religious authorities to stop preaching, Peter and John replied, We can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Acts 4.20 They claimed that they had eaten with the resurrected Jesus and that many witnesses could attest to the public appearances. 1 Corinthians 15.5-8 And so we read in Acts 4, verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. All this bravado would have ended easily enough if someone had produced Jesus' body. But the absence of his body in the clearly empty tomb pointed towards something far more radical than a mere spiritual or figurative resurrection. Other people mocked and scoffed. The religious authorities were, quote, greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, Acts 4.2. When some Athenians heard about the resurrection, we read in Acts 17.32 that, quote, they sneered, end quote. Porcius Festus, the Roman governor of Judea under Nero, confessed that he was, quote-unquote, at a loss to know what to do with his prisoner Paul. Quote, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. The next day, as Paul gave his legal defense, Festus screamed, You're out of your mind, Paul. 
Your great learning is driving you mad. Peter denied the charge that he had propagated, quote, a cleverly invented tale, end quote. While Paul rebutted Corinthians who said that there was no resurrection of the dead for anyone at all. And so there's nothing new about contemporary disbelief in the resurrection. It's theoretically possible that the first believers were either number one, badly deluded and wrong, or number two, blatant liars and immoral, deceived or deceivers, as Pascal put it. But neither of those explanations sounds very convincing to me. The only, th the only thing they stood to gain for their beliefs was political persecution and social marginalization. Paul raised the stakes even higher when he insisted that no person should believe a lie about the resurrection and that they certainly should not preach a lie. If Jesus is not raised, then Christian faith is a cruel hoax and a silly fiction. I believe the first believers, partly because of this chronicle of disbelief, their own and that of their detractors, and because of the price they paid to proclaim the resurrection. To me, it has the ring of truth. Peter, Paul, and many other unknown and unnamed believers died in Rome because of their conviction about the resurrection. And so, in the end, Peter challenges each one of us in Acts chapter 4.19, quote, judge for yourselves, end quote. They knew from first-hand experience that you can't compel belief in the resurrection. On the one hand, they insisted that their message was, quote, true and reasonable, end quote, for the events that they described were not done in a corner, but could be corroborated and verified, at least at some level and for a few years, Acts 25, Acts 26, verses 25 and 26. On the other hand, Paul admitted that his gospel was to the Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness. While Luke wrote that the resurrected Jesus was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Acts chapter 10 verse 41. Their witness thus amounted to what the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan once called oxymoronically public evidence for a mystery. I believe the belief of the women who were the last at the cross and the first at the empty tomb and the others who followed their lead on down to today. Mother Teresa believed so did Martin Luther King Jr. and Desmond Tutu. Others, like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, followed Festus in his condescending scorn. The Cambridge mathematician Bertrand Russell rejected the message and wrote a famous essay about his unbelief. The slave girl turned powerful preacher, Sojourner Truth, accepted the message. 
I believe the first believers and stand on the shoulders of other believers across time and space who have believed, confessed, and taught that God raised Jesus from the dead and that in so doing he vanquished sin, death, and the devil. And so, with readers from 210 countries who visited this weekly webzine for the global church, I join the Easter chorus, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And now for further reflection. What doubts do you have about the resurrection? Number two. Does it make sense to you that the first Christians might have been, as Pascal put it, deceived or deceivers? Number three, what do you think Pelican meant by his phrase, public evidence for a mystery? And number four, consider Paul's words that with his resurrection, Jesus destroyed death, 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 10. For books this week, I reviewed David Quo, Tempting Faith, an Inside Story of Political Seduction. New York, The Free Press, 2006, 283 pages. In his very first presidential campaign, George W. Bush promised to spend $8 billion per year to help the poor through faith-based initiatives. As an earnest and talented evangelical Christian, David Quo was euphoric, and so in 2001, he joined the White House staff as special assistant to Bush to help manage the new effort. At long last, he thought, he had found a way to use political means to further the ends of the gospel. But much to his credit, two years later he resigned when he realized that the Bush administration had done, quote, less than nothing, end quote, to fulfill their promises. It was all what he calls, quote, a farce, a brazen deception, smear tactics, and a mirage, end quote. The grant application process was a sham and probably illegal and unconstitutional. Worst of all, Quo saw how instead of using politics to further the gospel, his, his Bush colleagues played right-wing evangelicals like a cheap violin to further their strictly political ends and in private derided the evangelicals as dupes, nuts, and crazies. Evangelicals, Quo discovered, were used and abused as an incredibly gullible goldmine of voters. Nothing more and nothing less. So he concluded, quote, We were good people, forced to run a sad charade, to provide political cover to a White House that needed compassion in religion as political tools, end quote. 
Quo has been hammered by Dobson, Colson, and other conservative ideologues who can't bear to admit what he's documented based upon extensive personal experience. I found him even-handed in his treatment. He calls a spade a spade, gives people the benefit of the doubt, and tends not to judge their motives. He does a good job, for example, showing the flagrant disregard, derision, and breathtaking ignorance on the part of Democrats for people of faith and their faith concerns, all to their political loss, of course. Talk about being out of touch. Is it really possible that Terry McAuliffe, former head of the DNC, had no idea who Rick Warren was when he met him at a national prayer breakfast? And so, Quo concludes, was it any wonder evangelicals preferred hanging out with Republicans? But Quo is hardest on himself. Quote, I let the passion of politics distract me from what matters most in life, end quote. In fact, most of his book is a personal memoir about his own awakening to the corrosive environment of political power where manipulation, fragile egos, broken marriages, propagandistic lies, and partisan ideology are the order of the day. Principled purists with a genuine conscience will pay a heavy price to play this game of, of pragmatists. For Quo, a divorce, disillusionment, remarriage, and surgery for a massive brain tumor at the young age of 34 changed all of that, as did his growing realization that for Christians, the gospel should pervert and subvert political power and not vice versa. David Quo, Tempting Faith, an inside story of political seduction. For film this week, I review an Israeli film called Campfire from the year 2004. Set in 1981, Rachel Gerlich is a 42-year-old widow with two adolescent girls struggling to move beyond grief. Feeling very much isolated, it's what she calls her quote-unquote life dream to join the founders of a new settlement in the West Bank. The selection committee, though, is dubious about including a single woman, and her two, and her two young girls, in fact, accuse her of, quote-unquote, sucking up to, him, to them in her neediness to be wanted. Esty, her older daughter, acts out with an Israeli soldier while the younger Tammy gets more attention than she bargained for at the settlement's youth group bonfire. Into this mix steps Yossi, an older bachelor bus driver who also describes himself as a left-out, overlooked outsider. When Tammy's reputation is publicly smeared, Rachel's stock sinks even lower with the leader of the settlement. And in the end, she spurns the settlers in favor of her outsider status with Yossi and her two girls. Campfire is a personal 
rather than a political film. Although some Israelis have criticized the writer-director Joseph Cedar for smearing his Zionist family roots. The film won five Israeli Academy Awards and was Israel's entry for the 2004 Academy Award competition for Best Foreign Film. In Hebrew with English subtitles, Campfire from the year 2004. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a wonderful poem by Marianne Bernard, simply called Resurrection. Long, long, long ago, way before this winter's snow first fell upon these weathered fields, I used to sit and watch and feel and dream of how the spring would be when through the winter's stormy sea she'd raised her green and growing head, her warmth would resurrect the dead. Long before this winter's snow, I dreamt of this day's sunny glow and thought somehow my pain would pass with winter's pains and peace like grass would simply grow. But the pain's not gone. It's still as cold and hard and long as lonely pain has ever been. It cuts so deep and fear within. Long before this winter's snow, I ran from pain, looked high and low for some fast way to get around its hurt and cold. I'd have found if I had looked at what was there that things don't follow fast or fair, that life goes on and times do change and grass does grow despite life's pains. Long before this winter's snow, I thought that this day's sunny glow, the smiling children and growing things and flowers bright were brought by spring. Now I know the sun does shine, that children smile, and from the dark cold grime a flower comes, it groans yet sings, and through its pain its peace begins. Resurrection by Mary Ann Bernard and thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Easter Sunday, April 8th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.